Welcome to Season 3 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Daniel Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox Inspiration to Publication, Episode 58, Hughes and Cues. Today, we are joined by Scott Brady, a reviewer for SamReviews.com, as well as the designer of an abstract game called Boop that everyone is quite enthralled with right now, as well as the spotlight, uh, Hughes and Cues. Thanks for being on the show, Scott. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right. So everyone always wants to know, how did you get into game design? Uh, well, game design kind of came... I think by accident, um, it was, I have two daughters and we were always looking for games to play as a family. We were having a hard time finding games that were, uh, either too simple for the adults, you know, just didn't capture our attention or too difficult for our kids. So, um, because of my experience in the printing industry, which was what I did before, I came up with an idea for a game that all generations can play and not really have an advantage between the different age groups. So I actually designed it just for us to play at home based upon my printing industry experience. It's funny because I also have a printing background because I went to school for graphic design and like that was one of my internships. And then I worked for like Fujifilm graphic systems, like big wide format printers so, okay, that's really cool. So then with Hughes and yeah. Hughes, we'll talk about that. But like, how do you play the game first? And then how did your printer background come in? So playing the game and the printer background is kind of intertwined. It's um, So the game is about color matching. And it's not necessarily about you know what color is Kermit the Frog or what color is a banana. Uh, it's about how you see a banana or Kermit the Frog compared to how I see it or recall it. And of course, that can vary based upon the type of bananas you buy, the ripeness you buy, and how we recall them in our minds. So when I grew up, I was watching Kermit on a tube TV, barely in color. Of course, definitely not high definition, but my daughters, when they were of that age, they were watching Kermit on a high-def TV and has more vibrant colors. And so our source of, you know, remembering Kermit is different for each of us as well. So the game is played, the game exploits that idea of trying to get two people to agree on what color something is. And then the twist is you can't use words like blue and green and red and all of those basic color names just to make it a little bit more difficult. Because even with green, there are many, many hues of green, so we may or may not agree. So to play the game, everyone has these little cone meeples, if you will, and those were chosen because we have rods and cones in our eyes. And so as a tiny thematic element, we use cones for the player pieces. One person becomes the cube giver, and they draw a card from a deck that has four colors on it. And those are also represented on this spectrum of a board with uh, letters and numbers to coordinate where that color is on the board. And they choose one of those four colors and then try to give a one-word clue, again, without using red, blue, green, all the basic crayon colors, to get the other people to guess what color they're trying to describe. So 
A common clue might be cantaloupe, as an example. And so everyone in turn order will take one of their cones and place it on the board, one per spot, to where what they associate with the word cantaloupe, or better, even what they think the cue giver associates with the word cantaloupe. And there becomes the problem because there are different color, different shades of cantaloupe. Is he talking about the inside meat? Is he talking about the ice, the outside skin? Or are they talking ripe or unripe? And so it's very abstract into what color they might be trying to describe. So once everyone takes their guess on what they think color cantaloupe is, then the cue giver has an opportunity to try to hone in on their color by giving a second two-word clue. And this may or may not be related to the first clue of cantaloupe. So they might have been thinking in their mind, let's say they were thinking of a um, a very ripe uh, orangish, even though you can't say orange, uh, cantaloupe, uh, the inside meat. And so their second might be uh, early sunset. Maybe that's their second clue. And so using those two clues, cantaloupe and early sunset, everyone then in reverse order makes a second guess onto the board. Again, only one per space. And then once everyone has placed their second guess, uh, then the scoring commences, which is kind of a unique uh, uh, scoring mechanism, I think, for a party game. And it's a uh, a target-based scoring system where the person who... If someone gets it exactly right, they get three points. If they were one square away, they get two points. And if they were two squares away, they get one point. But additionally, the cube giver um, gets a point for each person that was only one square away or exactly not. So they can actually score up to nine points on their turn. And so everyone takes, depending upon the number of players, you either go around the table once or twice, uh, taking turns at being the cube giver. And then final score, whoever has the highest overall score wins. And that's the entire game. I I thought that was an interesting game because I actually played it for the first time during my birthday party uh, this okay. past year. And it was really fun because I was like looking for a game that was a very large player count. And I read it and I was like, oh, wow. OK, you support like, what is it, eight people or something? Yeah, outside, out of the box, it supports up to 10 um, it's actually could be if, if you grab some pennies or dimes or whatever to keep the game fair, it supports up to 12 where everyone would have enough spaces to score points. You can technically play it with more. It's just the possibility that people will get crowded out and have no opportunity to score. Mm-hmm. And I, I bet, I bet with your printing background, I bet it really spoke to you because that's why it spoke to me because it was something that we dealt with every day was you know, dealing with customers who don't understand matching systems and, and are trying to describe what color. Yeah. I used to have to like calibrate the printers and like use the little like scanner thing to hit all the different colors to make sure that it was going to print correctly and hit the colors that they're looking for. But then like looking on a screen is different than looking at the printout and those fights. Yes. Very much remember. Yes. If, if you didn't have matching systems like Pantone or be able to call up CMYK codes, um, to make sure that everything is exactly what they said, then yeah, you're you go back to the old way of doing it. And the customer says, "Oh, I want blue jean blue, or I want fire truck red," and you know those are very abstract. Who you know, there's many different colors of blue jeans, so who knows what they really want? 
I yes, 100%. I remember the biggest printing issue that I ever had was when I worked at Freeman Expositions, who does like the trade shows, mm-hmm. they do a lot of the conventions we go yep. to. I worked for them when the Republican convention was happening where before Trump was elected. So okay. he apparently didn't have his marketing team proof his initial Trump Pence logo. And it looked too okay. sexual, but we had already printed thousands of signs where this T is penetrating <laughs> the P, like the hole in the P. Um, oh, it no. looks really hilarious, but we had to recall all of them and redo it. Ended up redoing it twice because we did it a second time, still wrong, third time. And I was just like, after that, I just could not look at the color red again. So like that particular <laughs> red just like sets me off. <laughs> it was so funny. That's some early morning mental images there that I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> Well, welcome to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. But no, I really thought this game was cool because we did have like those arguments. Like one of my friends gave the word apple as a hint. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like apple ranges from red to like yellow to green. Like what I don't clearly I don't know you well enough to have invited you to my birthday because I don't know what color apple you're eating. Like it was just like, what? (laughs) but it was fine. Like having those discussions and just being like very, very wrong with colors. And we actually had one person that had, I do not remember what kind of color blindness, but it was like one of my friends Mm -hmm. brought their friend who was in town from Michigan and she was still able to play the game. Surprisingly. Yep. Because like so, the shade of it was still like the shade she sees with her eyes. So, yeah. So interesting. an interesting side note to that is you'll see a lot of comments online about, oh, this game isn't for colorblind or, or color deficient, which is the, the actual term for it. And it's it's always commented on by people who aren't color deficient. It's always their assumption that a color game cannot be played by a person with a deficiency. And in all honesty, not only from my experience in the printing industry, but we actually tested it with some board certified ophthalmologists to to, uh, validate our theory, which was uh, people with a color deficiency, with the exception of those who only see in grayscale. And that's like one in a billion. I mean, the the numbers are, are so small of people who are actually fully colorblind. But people with a color deficiency actually perform a little bit better in hues and cues because, one, they have lived their life with this, let's call it disability, um, and have become hypersensitive to small changes in color because they've had to. So what we found is that people with color deficiencies not only can can play the game, they can play the game competitively. And it's because, again, the game is about perception. Now, to use your example of Apple, and let's assume it's a bright red, uh, uh, or let's assume it's a golden delicious apple. So we all have an idea of what that looks like. Oh, God. Um, what, what it looks like to you in your mind, okay, and what it looks like to your friend um, should be close, if not the exact same spot on the board, because how they see a golden delicious apple in the store is what they store in their mind as their memory. So when they're recalling that particular hue on the board, it should be as muted or offset from the color that it actually is as it is in their mind. Even those of us who have um, 
perfect color vision or an extra cone in our eyes so we see a wider spectrum. It's the same thing. We all see colors different. We just can't describe it. How you and I both see a um, a logo, you know, for a Trump Pence sign, a particular red, would be different. We just can't describe it. We know how we see. It. So that's the game is about perception, not uh, color definition. So a colorblind person can most certainly compete in this game. It's just getting over the fear of, oh, it's a colored game, I'm not going to be able to do it. And once they do, then it's no problem. There have actually been a number of color-deficient game reviewers that have played the game and talked about their experiences with it and how they you know remain competitive. And even if, if they weren't competitive in the final score, maybe it wasn't because of their deficiency, it was because of their color vocabulary, but they still had fun. Um, maybe even to, at their expense sometimes. Oh, for sure. No, I mean, when you were playtesting this game, did you come into like any issues or was, I'm sure since you did hire people to check on the color deficiencies, like, right. that was one issue you thought up. But beyond that, like what other uh, maybe hurdles did you have when coming up with it? Well, I think the biggest hurdle I had, I mean, I had two hurdles. So one was how the board was itself was going to be laid out before we finalized on that final spectrum. My prototype had a very different design to it on the board, which worked just fine. But what we found were certain colors were too easy. On that board, there was a corner of the board that had a lot of browns in it. And so every time someone drew a brown, all the clues were like, poop, you know, or, or poop related. Yeah. And so we eliminated Browns completely from the board just because it was too easy of a clue. And it became, if that cho- if that color was chosen, then um, it was too easy. So we had to look at, at colors and purposely chose colors that weren't, I guess, 100% recognizable. You know, like there's not a, a deep, perfect blue or a like a LA Lakers purple, perfect one. So designing the board, you know, went through a lot of different changes for that to, to make it as fair as possible when you know, people chose a color. The other thing was the clue giving part. When designing the game, we went through a couple different versions where maybe they were trying to formulate a story as a clue before it became one word and two words. So they would describe something like the perfect marinara sauce or Mm -hmm. do you remember grandma's old refrigerator it's that color and so it became more of a storytelling thing and then trying to get people to you know pick the color based upon that but what we found was that became very uh, dependent upon who you're playing with. You really couldn't do that with yeah, strangers Yeah, I feel like you would cut much. people out of it. Yeah. Or yeah. even just in a group, you'd be like, oh, this person's very familiar with me, but all these other ones aren't going to score points. So it feels like it wouldn't be fair. Exactly. And that's exactly what happened was while it was very creative and engaging to hear people's stories or how how the, the good example that I give is where I said a minute ago, the perfect marinara, she, uh, the the lady who mentioned that had a idea in her mind of the sauce her mom used to make, and you could tell it really meant a lot to her. 
So it was interesting seeing people's association and love for a specific memory or color associated with that memory. And I love that aspect of it. But in reality, for a game, uh, it just, like you said, it didn't work. It, it left other people out because they really did. They had their own idea of what a perfect marinara is. Um, and it might be something very, very different than what the cube giver had. So we went through that and then we played with, you know, one word, one word clues. Well, first it was just a one word clue and then we added the second clue. And so coming up with the right mix of cue giving to get people to hone in where it didn't feel just, oh, I'm taking a random guess. The second clue uh, for the guessers became, oh, okay, now I see what you mean. Then you meant this color, even if the first one was wildly off. And what that also introduced is, and I don't know if you experienced it when you played, uh, that second clue is particularly difficult for the cue giver to come up with a second description of the same color. Did you see that at all? Yeah, I did. Uh, one of the people <laughs> used booger as the first word. And so all of us are like thinking like, uh, <laughs> and it was funny because yeah, well, they kind of yeah. wanted to use yeah. like flubber as the second one, but then they're like, okay. come on, that's not two words. And I'm trying to remember what they actually ended up going with. I don't even know, but yeah, it was interesting to see that that was like slightly more difficult. Or they would yeah. ask, like, can I use a person's name? Like, we have, like, questions like that. Or it's like, well, can I use right. the word plum? Like, technically, it's kind of like a yeah. color, but, like, not a color. And I was like, oh, geez. We had some of those, like, technicalities that we would talk through. And uh, yeah. Yeah. we just kind of went with, like, yeah, the so, rule of cool for some of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So to, to clarify for your listeners, so the second clue doesn't have to be two words. It can be up to two words. So they could have used flubber if they wanted to. You know, the only limitation on cube giving is you can't use the basic color words, which are, you know, red, blue, green, brown, orange, those kind of things. Basically, the eight colors. Would violet count? Violet, you most certainly can. You can use teal. You can use chartreuse. You can use any of those abstract color names because violet, you'll get a wild range of answers on. Um, whereas purple, you know, people kind of hone in on the perfect mix of, mix of red and blue for purple. It's all yeah. those abstract color names, absolute goldenrod, as an example. Those are all perfectly okay. It's just the, think of the eight, the eight count crayon box and what comes in there. And those are the ones you can't use. Anything else is fair game. Yeah. Proper names are fair game. Whatever you can use to associate with. The other restriction is you can't use anything to... You can't refer to anything in the room. You probably remember that. And you also can't refer to the positioning on the board. So your clue can't be A10, as an example. But you also can't say if your first clue was booger, he couldn't have come back and said light burger. Booger, because that would refer yeah. to the position on the board from where you were before. So a second clue might have been uh, uh, light lime, maybe. And see, it's a very abstract, and it's referring. It's not referring to anything on the board. It's referring to a light colored lime. So that would be allowed too. And that's all for the rules sticklers out there. But we do encourage house rules or friendly play because that's what it's meant to be. 
Very cool. And then how did you come up with the targeting for the scoring mechanism? Because honestly, that was the thing that intrigued <laughs> me the most for a party game, just because like yeah. party games are one of those weird spaces where a lot of times people just don't care about scoring. And so trying to come right. up with a unique scoring mechanism that benefits both the clue or the cue giver and the guesser. Yeah is important, but like not necessarily needed if you're just playing for fun. Yeah. It's, I don't have a solid answer to that because I honestly don't remember exactly what, what prompted the idea. So I was messing with a bunch of different scoring mechanisms and mostly concerned. I mean, they all, really had to do with point value because I, I I looked at it almost like a bullseye board where you're trying to get as close as possible. That was the premise of the game. So my scoring was, you know, 1.2.3 point or whatever. I messed around with different scoring values. And my goal was always to also have the cube giver score as well. So my my philosophy was... Both people need to have an incentive to get it correct. Otherwise, you don't have a good game. And But the cue giver should always be able or have the potential to outscore the individual player. So an individual player's maximum score under the current rules is five points. If they get one right in the center, dead on the color, and one right next to it, the maximum an individual can score is if the cube ever gives good clues, the maximum they can score is nine on their turn. And was playing around with that, and but wanted to also introduce a way for um, everyone to score in case that, that little block of nine was filled up, then it might leave other players out. So I had the idea of, okay, let's add one more ring to it, a one-point ring on the outside, but I don't want to give any of those points to the uh, cue giver. So it would be, so on my rule sheet, it said three points for the middle. Once I got the numbers worked out, it said three points for the middle, two points Mm -hmm. for one away, one point for two away. And then I started thinking about the manufacturing process. Well, and and how players are going to perceive that because it became very time intensive after a turn to figure out, I always have to count how many they were away and figure out the score. So there was a little bit too much downtime between turns because of that. And I don't, I don't remember what prompted it, but I just had the idea of this little scoring frame that you could drop in and I cut one, printed one out and cut it, you know, out of paper and made a paper version. And it worked so beautifully uh, to separate the scoring for the cube giver and the cube guessers that, once I made that, that stayed. And that's been the thing that a lot of people have pointed out was that was such an elegant solution um, because it gave that, that aha moment. It gave that, it gave that reveal moment at the end of the turn rather than just, okay, this is my color and everyone counts. It became the cube giver kind of hovering it over there, trying to find their square. And then, uh, and then everyone sees the result right away. And so it was one of those, outside the rules experiences that everyone had um, when the color was revealed. And I'm particularly proud of that, that creation, that part of the game. 
No, I think it's really cool. It shows in a visual way, like how well you're doing. And I know that when we played, we kind of just designated myself as the person to move everyone's like score rods or whatever, or cones and just move all of them because it's just easier to have someone (laughs) point out and say like this color. And I was like, okay, move, move, move. And so it was kind of a double team between me and Rochelle. But yeah, I thought that was really, really cool. It's funny that you mentioned score rods because... In the prototype, they were originally little cylinders. They were rods. So it was supposed to be uh-huh. rods and cones. And it was a cost-saving thing during manufacturing to, make them just all to the do, same use shape. all cones. Yeah, all the same shape. But it's funny that you said score rods because it originally, it originally was that when I pitched it to the up. Oh, see, great minds think alike. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> That's so funny. And so then, yeah, how did you end up getting it uh, published by the op? I was super lucky, and I'll just say it that way. It's I had my pro once I once I finished it at home. I you know played it with friends and such around here. They encouraged me to show it to some publishers, and because of our work with Sam Reviews, that we had a lot of good relationships with publishers that I could kind of skip the line, if you will, and didn't have to you know, do speed, you know speed dating or anything yeah, like that. So I could just walk up and, yeah, and show it to them. So um, we took it to Geekway to the West and played it with some publisher friends who loved it. And a couple made me offers right there. But one of the publishers, I have to have a shout out to Shane at Gray Fox Games, said I, he would love to publish it, but that I needed to look much bigger for the game. And I was being very conservative with my hopes for the game. I just thought it would be cool to see a game published. And he encouraged to look bigger. So I started to, after Geekway and Origins was coming up and uh, emailed some people say, hey, I got something I want to show you. Can we make some appointments? Which we did. And by the end of Origins, we had seven companies asking to publish it. And wow. I, I knew that that just doesn't happen. And Narrowed it down pretty quickly to two or three who were super interested. And um, in the end, went with the op. They were one of the people. It worked out really well because we demoed it in their booth. We pitched it in their booth. And while I was pitching, um, the a crowd gathered because the board drew them in. And uh, to this day, I swear I didn't pay any of them. But yeah, uh, a natural crowd just formed just to see, hey, what is this game with the colorful board? And they knew right away that they wanted it. And then we negotiated for probably three months. And it wasn't until Gen Con, just after Gen Con of uh, 2019, that we finally went forward on a contract. So um they they showed good interest. They made some good promises about including it in what they called in their own evergreen line, which is alongside like telestrations and blank slate and yeah. um assured me it wouldn't get lost among all their IP products and they've done a wonderful job. I had no complaints whatsoever. Um and they've sold a lot of copies, which is what I was hoping would happen. <laughs> That's amazing. So then how long would you say from the initial idea to it being printed out so people could play it, do you think it took? So I began my first, I I first began working on it in early summer of 2008. 
14. And at that time, it was a card game. It wasn't even a board game. And I was, but it was still the same premise. I was trying to figure out a way to do color matching in a game. From early summer 2018 till January of 2019 is when I first started showing it to local friends. And then it was Geekway 2019 that I took it to. Um, it was, I guess, from concept to publishing, Hughes and Cues only took about two years, which I know from experience is probably under average, you know, from concept to actually on the shelves. The op happened to have a, a slot in their, in their uh, timeline that they didn't have to wait. They didn't slot it for two years out. They could jump yeah. right on it, and, and they did. So from actually from the time that they signed it to the time it hit the shelves, it was less than a year. That is impressive, especially for a larger yeah. publisher. Exactly. Now when I pitch stuff to them, they tell me, oh, we're already looking at 2025 stuff. Okay. Yep. That's been me <laughs> with most of my have. pitching. It's like 2024, 2025. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, cool yep. story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Well, then what was your favorite and your least favorite experience from the journey of this particular design? Back to my kids, for sure, because it turned out it was a game that they loved to play. And once it got published, having them come home from school and say, my friend saw your game on TikTok. We had a couple of TikToks that went viral and early on in the process, which was great because we released a party game in the middle of a pandemic, right? So yeah. we, were, we were super worried about that because it was already in production before the pandemic hit and had no choice but to release it. Here we've got a game that supports up to 10 players and everyone's locked in their homes. Um, so it was... It started out a little bit slower than we wanted to, as expected with the pandemic. But once people got in and started making, you know, natural content for it, and a couple of those videos went viral, having my daughter say that their friends had seen the game and then they were able to brag about, oh, that's, that's the game my dad made. And of course, they became many superstars as well. And the kids That's started so sending games home with my daughters to autograph. So I think those were my favorite parts of the journey was just seeing them get involved in the in the hype of it at the time. I love that. That is so adorable. Oh, my gosh. So you became like a celebrity and they kind of got to ride that wave with you. That's, that's so exactly what happened. That's exactly oh what gosh. happened. And, of course, that's, that's been great for Boop, which is coming, which is out now. It's the same thing because they've been asking my daughter, oh, what, what's your dad working on? Can we see it? That kind of thing. That's so funny. What are you working on right now? Well, Boop just released to a lot of buzz at PAX Unplugged. We had some trouble getting it out of China. We were perfecting some things with the quilt that came in the in the game. Once it finally hit in mid-November, the entire print run, which was the largest print run Smirk and Dagger's ever done, sold out in two and a half weeks. And so we're... Damn. The next... Yeah, it was... We knew there was buzz by the pre-orders, but we really didn't understand... As, as Kurt was smirking dagger says, the lightning in a bottle that we were holding on to. So the second print run is actually already done and on its way here. And it's almost completely sold out. And there, he's going to be placing an order for the third 
the third batch here right after Chinese New Year passes. So right in wow. the first of February. That's going to feel um, amazing for you. I'm also very happy I got my copy of it and how'd you sign it? <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost surreal. Let me I mean and it's uh, to have a second one. I wanted to do a second one because I didn't want to be you know, this is a little bit of ego talking, I guess, but I didn't want to be like a one-hit wonder where I had Hughes and Cues that did amazingly well, but I wanted to prove that I had more than one game in me and and Boop, which started out as a basic abstract and turned into a thematic one, it is proving that. And so for me, that was my personal goal was to have a second one. However, there is a already a follow-up to Boop in the works. Um, we haven't decided on a published date yet, but we wanted something that was a little less cutesy, but still in the same family. So there is a robot version coming. So instead of cats, it's going to be these cute, like Johnny Five looking robots. Um, it's a hex board instead of a square board. They're fi- they're in an arena. The mechanism is the same that, that they when they enter the arena, they boop everyone away, which is a little less thematic. But when they uh, when you line up three in a row, they also drop a part off of them, and it's a spring, and it becomes a spring trap that also can eject people off of the board. And that one, they will either come out at PAX Unplugged this year or sometime next year. It really depends upon on Boop itself and, you know, how how much buzz that one gets because we wouldn't want to obviously uh, take sales away from the first one. But the probably next to fi- the probably the final name for to make it a series since it's about robots it's gonna be like beep this one will be called beep boop exactly ah, right. called it yeah <laughs> seems so obvious but i was like yeah it does it does <laughs> they originally wanted to do to make a one that was less cutesy their idea was dragons the publisher's idea was dragons and said no 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 we have to do robot because then it's then we can actually call it something different and play into the first name. No, that is a cute idea. Okay. I like that. That's awesome. Um, Congratulations again on it. But also, I still haven't heard, what was your least favorite part of your experience designing Hughes and Cues? We got off track. (laughs) Um, Least favorite part, I think, is the weight. And even though... Even though Hughes and Cues came to market just a couple years after Concept, once you hand it off to a publisher, and this was my first experience, remember, with the, you know, having a published game, and especially the bigger the publisher, like the app, I, I don't want to say you lose control, but you lose the information, the ongoing information of where it's at, you know, the anticipation of, oh, what, what have they changed? What are they doing to it? When's it going to be out? Where is it going to be shown? All of that waiting, and and as a designer, I think we want it's our baby, especially our first one. And yeah. you want to know everything that's happening. You want to be part of the process. You want to know. And a larger company like a Hasbro or the Op or Cosmos or someone like that, they don't have time to keep the uh, designer updated minute by minute. So that was. For someone, I had worked on it daily for over a year, and then all of a sudden to hear nothing, uh, that was excruciating for me personally. 
because I wanted to know. I was excited. I wanted to know what they were doing and and worried that, oh, are they going to change anything, that kind of thing. So I think that was probably the worst part of the experience is just, it's just not knowing. And there, we've, we've all heard, I'm sure you have, you know, stories of designers, they get their game signed and then it never makes it to market for one reason or another. And that's always a fear that was in the back of my mind is, oh, well, maybe they signed it, but then something else came along and they got bumped or something. So. Oh, for sure. That or I experienced like when I got my eBay buy it now game, like the development mm-hmm. of it changed some rules that I really don't like in reading reviews yep. on BGG. I'm like, I didn't make that rule. And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yep. you just got to accept it. It's like, all right, whatever. It's out there. Hopefully people don't judge a person on just a single design. And it was like, eh. exactly. Gotta just I, let I, it, go. it was the same for me with Hughes and Cues. There were no cards in my version. Um, cards were something the op added. And in hindsight, you know, at the time I was, oh, when I heard it, I was so against it. Well, they actually informed me about that. And I really felt strongly at the time that that was a mistake. And um, my version allowed you just to choose a color on the board. And then there was a mechanism for preventing people for, from choosing that same color. They decided to add cards to the board. I finally... You know, I just accepted it because I had to. But now that I look back on it, I realize they knew the market better than I did. And it was the right decision for the market they were going after, which was mass market. And it really simplified the game. By basically, yeah, removing an option because now it's like, okay, you choose from these four versus looking at this giant board of colors and picking something. Yeah. Choose between those four instead of 480 and uh, kept the game flowing from from, uh, that standpoint for a mass market customer. Um, But yeah, I can now say it was the right decision, but at the time... Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't very happy about it. <laughs> yeah. It definitely can swing both directions. But then okay, yep. so then as just like one piece of advice to give to other designers, what uh, piece of advice would you bestow on them? Oh, so the best piece of advice, and I I'm a lurker in many, many, many of the design forums and things like that. I see the same questions over and over. If you are designing a game and you are going to take the route of ha- of pitching it to a publisher because you don't want to self-publish. You don't want to kickstart. You would prefer to design rather than market. Don't wait until your game is done to establish the relationships with publishers. The It's going to be beneficial to everyone if you take the time to go to a convention. Um, and you don't even have to really spend a lot of time with the, with the publisher, but what you want to do is you want to just, just ask someone working in the booth, who is the person responsible for inventor relations? Um, so you have a name, you, you already can get to the right person without wasting their time there, and then look at their product line to see what kind of games they normally carry. By doing your research and establishing that, uh, that knowledge ahead of time, when it comes time to pitch, you're not going to have to just shotgun it everywhere hoping someone picks up on it you're going to say uh hey game right i happen to have a card game that i think fits your target audience of six plus 
Um, and then you'll also have the name and be able to contact them directly. I would, if that's the route someone's taking as a game designer with the idea of it being published is don't, don't underestimate the, um, the importance of establishing that ahead of time. Plus, once you have that relationship, it's so much easier to get their ear when it is done rather than having to, uh, having to, um, depend upon, you know, a speed pitch event or something of that sort. You can do some of your pitching outside the con, con hours or outside traditional just by email and such because you already have that relationship. I am definitely going to second that. I will say the thing that helped me get full-time in the industry and get games signed and just like those connections was like networking by either working and volunteering at a booth because someone posted on Facebook, hey, I'm looking for help or by going to different like events or playing games or like going to the more local, like an unpub where it's like a prototype event, but like publishers will show up and like see your games. There's just so many different ways to make those connections. And once you have someone's direct email, and they actually recognize your face when they see your name makes things so much easier than like the cold call of just like going on their website, filling in the digital form, and then like sending in a video rule sheet and all that stuff. It's like, yeah, that's great. You can get stuff signed that way. You don't hear about it as often. Like even just in my podcast alone, there have been very few cold calls that have like worked out uh, for the designers. So it's like, definitely networking is a great way to do it. And thankfully COVID actually kind of made it easier to do like digital networking, which is right. nice. Cause I know I keep running into people at conventions now that it's like this awkward, like we're kind of sort of friends. Cause we've been Facebook friends for two years, <laughs> but this is technically the first time we're in person. So it's like, is it cool to hug? <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, I get that. I think that's great advice. Yeah. And it's, I found that you know, once you get to know them, you'll understand some of their design principles and such as well. What not necessarily what they're looking for, but, you know, what they believe works and what doesn't work. It might even have you know, if you if you end up showing them or they see a prototype at a protospiel or an unpub, you know, they might have some good suggestions for you as well about the direction to take to get it published that you might not have thought of. So, yeah, being involved in the industry to cap that off it, it, by networking, by volunteering, like you said, that's a that's a fantastic way to really get in front of the people so they recognize your face and your name. Um, definitely recommend that. For my last question of the episode, <laughs> if you could be the designer of a game you didn't design, which game would you choose? Am I, am I talking about a new game that hasn't been invented yet? or one No, no, no. It's a game that's already published. It could be one of your favorites. It could be oh, one that I'd just I'd take the like ticket to ride money any day. Ticket to ride money. money any day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 10 million copies. Come on. <laughs> that is fair. That's hard credit. to beat. That's <laughs> no, right. but uh, a serious answer. Um, I've taken a stab at some you know, like heavier hobby type stuff. And, and I haven't gotten very far just because um, the math, uh, I think the math behind it needs to be more advanced than what I'm able to do. But um, if I, I think I would love to, I guess it's a shout out to the op again. I would love to work on anything that's licensed based like Marvel or something like that, just to uh, take a shot at something that, uh, has a IP behind it and let that IP kind of 
guide the game, the story of the game itself, whether it's Harry Potter or Marvel or Star Trek or or uh, some kind of indie IP. I think it'd be interesting to try to. I've always designed from mechanic first. Yeah. With Boop, it was mechanic first. With Hues and Cues, it was the idea of color matching. And so I've always designed as that is the forefront. But I think it'd be interesting to take on a project theme first and not, not try to make a game that fits, but let it, but make a good game, but let that theme guide you, if you will. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I know like most of my games were theme first, so. I'm on the opposite okay. side of you, but cool. <laughs> All right. So ticket to ride money, but for future projects, wanting some IP yeah. action. Cool. There you go. Well, awesome. So then to our audience, thank you for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, episode 58, Hues and Cues. And thanks again, Scott, for joining us. For anyone trying to find you online, where can they reach out? Easiest way is by Facebook or LinkedIn. I'm uh, W. Scott Brady on both of those, um, on TikTok as well. Um, Facebook's probably the easiest way to find me. Awesome. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're looking to find me on social media, you can check out my Instagram and my Twitter under the username Token Gamer, and that's spelled G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. Join us next time.